Well, it's, um, it's a blessing to come back. Thank you for uh, the welcome. And I really want to thank Father Strand, uh, your new pastor, for his kind invitation to me to come up here today and to pray at the Mass and uh, to be part of this historic occasion for the parish and for the community. And I also want to thank him for the chance to come and just talk a bit about the mural and all that brought us to this point. And um, so it's very kind. And uh, downstairs, uh, he gave a very beautiful uh, list of thanks to everybody, which I was happy to listen to. And I, I echo all the same, uh, thinking about all the donors and the faces and the time and the prayers and the sacrificing. And so it's really, it takes a lot, doesn't it, to take things like this to their ultimate result. Um, but I will uh, step in and pull rank on him as his, his boss now. <laughs> And thank one person that he, I think, uh, in humility left out, which is himself. Uh, the fact is, it's hard to move around if you're a pastor and if you're a priest, and it's hard to walk away from things that you love. And uh, when I got yanked out of here, uh, we went looking for someone to come here, and the conversation in the archdiocese was, who are we going to find who's going to step into this and try and carry a lot of stuff forward that... In my typical fashion, I had 13 balls in the air at once, because that's how I like to live my life. And I was going to walk away, and I said, someone has to catch them all now. And we happened upon Father Strand. So uh, he very kindly heard God's call, like the just said today, to come here to St. Mary's at Cabrini from Kowalski, which he loved as I loved being here. And he's taken it on, and he's owned it. And uh, I really want to thank him for bringing this to where it is today, because it was not an easy thing to do. So. Father, thank you so much for your leadership. I've been at this job for a year now. I learned that I am the Archdiocesan Complaint Department. And there's a, and I tell people, there's a half million of you and one of me. So if there's a backlog, it's a math problem. It's not that I don't want to talk to you. I just can't keep up with all the letters. And um, so every day at my desk, what crosses my desk is the chaos of the diocese. And I won't fill you in because you, you don't want to hear what I deal with, but um, I will just say, as I kind of watch different sectors of diocesan life and all that's going on and hear about all the priests, good or for ill, uh, you do have here in West Bend, uh, at Holy Angels and St. Mary's and Cabrini, uh, some of our best guys. I mean, you really do have very capable, good shepherds here. They are, uh, I'm glad that they are here, and you should be glad that they're here too. So again, a thanks to him and Father Harmon and Father Hazi as well because I don't get calls about them. <laughs> Which tells me we're doing great here in West Bend, okay? <laughs> so love them and support them as you did me. Really, from the bottom of my heart, we need to do that, all right? So thank you, and thanks to them. So um, as Father mentioned, you know, I, I spent many, many years in these pews. Uh, not these, though they're not here anymore. The other pews. I, and as an aside, sitting up here, I thought to myself, we took every pew out of here. You put brand new ones in, and some of you all managed to sit back in the same spots in the new pews. <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, in the old pews, I would sit there for years and years looking at this, go, what do you do in this room, you know, because it was just a hard space. So, um, as I said to someone today, I said, welcome to my mind. You know, here, my mind's a scary place to be, but this is a, a piece of it. And I really have to say, it came together pretty much like I hoped. I mean, it's really remarkably what we planned on, right? So as we go along, I'll talk a bit about the thanks to Comrade Schmidt, to Anthony, the artist who is here too, who um, did a stunning job on the works of art in this room, okay? 
So first of all, you know, understand that, um, as Father mentioned downstairs, the sanctuary is supposed to be the heart of a Catholic worship space. And uh, we did all this to make it as sacred a space as we possibly could. Um, the building has its own limitations, you know. But as mid-modern buildings go, there is a beauty to this building, to be honest. And as I was here for the years, I learned to see it in the lines of the building. And I learned to see it in especially the, uh, the beams that surround me here. And what began to lead us into the pathway of this was, we have this 41-foot tall wall. This is four stories tall. You don't realize how big this building is because the architect got proportions really well. It's a four-story wall, okay? What do you do with it, right? We decided to drywall over it and put a mural on it, and the question is, of what? We had, of course, the crucifix here for a long time. It's now migrated out to uh, the narthex. It looks beautiful out there. I'm so glad for the suggestion. It wasn't mine, someone else, to put it there, and I'm glad they did because it looks great out there. But as you know, when they built this church in 1968, there was nothing on this wall at all. It was just beams. And then eventually, and over in that corner, where Mother Cabrini is now, this is my legal laser pointer. Um, this was the risen Christ in the original church, which is now in the south stairway. And over here, I don't want to hit Will and Britt, was the uh, Holy Family statue. There was nothing on this wall at all. Eventually, a decision was made, I want to say by Father Lambert, to put the risen Christ statue right here and put a Mary statue over there. And uh, Father Haynes, now Bishop Haynes, when they renovated in 2000, 2001, the last time this place was renovated, put that big crucifix right here, and uh, the risen Christ statue moved to the back where the Divine Mercy image is now. So statues move around in this church, okay? So it wasn't built to have anything on it, is the point. And if you look at Catholic churches in Europe, especially but around the world, a lot of them don't have big crucifixes in them. I know that we were used to it here, but the decision was made to go with a different image that represents the Lord. So we wound up with this instead. Uh, the crucifix that's in the sanctuary, because you need to have one, it's required, is right here on top of the tabernacle. There is the crucifix. And uh, because it tells us that what's happening here is the sacrifice of Christ made present to all of us, the faithful, to participate in with the sacrifices of our lives and to um, take in the truth and power of Christ risen from the dead as well. So the Pascha mystery happens here, and the crucifix there tells us that. But above the crucifix, you can put whatever you want, okay, as long as it's religious, okay, which we did. This is very much now a, um, I would say, a November kind of scene in this church. And by that I mean a couple of things. Um, for one, in here we never had an image of Mother Cabrini. She had this beautiful church dedicated to her here in 1955, a uh, school built in her honor, a church built in her honor, but she never appeared anywhere in here. And her feast day is in November on the 13th, every single year, since she's been canonized. So she's now made her way in here. This is Mother Cabrini. So in November, this would be certainly a place of honor in this worship space, and there she is. So that's not exactly Jesus that she's holding on her lap, although it could be. In fact, it's actually, the artist is here. Anthony, I think, is here, right? This is Anthony's child that he painted into the picture, which is beautiful. But it's supposed to be another Cabrini taking care of the downtrodden, and she is welcoming them into her embrace in the heavenly vision that she now enjoys as one of the canonized of the church. 
Okay, so it's an altar of charity, of witness, and of real, I think, honor and tribute to the fact that she founded dozens and dozens and dozens across this country and around the world of hospitals, orphanages, schools. She was a powerhouse of charity and prayer. So November, she's here in a special way. November is also the month of the saints, and it's the month of Christ the King. It bookends the month, right? So you open November with the bottom of the mural, you might say, and you close it with the heart of the mural. This is Christ the King. That's who this is in the mural. And for a liturgical space like this, like a sanctuary, it's important to have over the altar the representation of Christ in a majestic, glorified, powerful presentation. So he comes with power, he comes with might, he comes at the end of time, he sits as judge, he sits on the clouds, and he sits over all of us, as Father said downstairs, inviting all of us to join him there. And the goal is to move from the pews to the heavenly realm by way of the altar and the sacraments. We start with the font, there'll be a new font in the back, that's coming in February, I want to say, so font at the door of the church, we're washed, fed at the altar for our lives, to die, we'll rest here in a casket at our deathbed, and we will be, God willing and with his mercy, up there. That's where we're going, right? So this is here to tell us what our lives should be about, what the world should be about, what we're heading to. This is what it's all for. The image has its own particular biblical origin. So um, you know the phrase, the Son of Man. He says this in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Son of Man. It's a unique phrase in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's just son of man. In the New Testament, it's the son of man. And it's how he describes himself. He doesn't call himself a Messiah. He doesn't call himself Jesus. That's the name given to him by the angel in the womb. He doesn't call himself Christ, like it's a last name or something like that. Okay. He calls himself the son of man. It's his only self-designated title. Where does he get it from? It appears in the Old Testament different spots, but its prominent place is in the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I need glasses soon. This is going to be great. <laughs> made, it all, made it 45 years, and I, I'm almost there. As the visions during the night continued, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man, when he reached the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He received dominion, splendor, and kingship, All nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship, one that shall not be destroyed. This is Daniel's vision of the glory of God that's coming to rescue the people from captivity in the exile. The Son of Man, God's power coming on the clouds of heaven to liberate the people who are in slavery and bring them home to the fullness of God's power. The Lord, in his lifetime, knowing who he is, adopts this language to describe himself, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds with majesty and glory and enthroned to do what? To save his people from the captivity of our sins and all that weighs us down that is painful in this life. So this is an image of one who has triumphed over all that holds us down. Okay? This is also a nod okay, to Christ the King where these verses are referenced. And to the fact that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, not so much John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when the Lord appears before the Sanhedrin, the night that he's arrested, he's put on trial, the high priest questions him and finally says, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? 
And he references the Lord, his answer, he quotes these two verses from Daniel. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. So this is a scene from the night of Holy Thursday into Good Friday that he is referencing. You will see the entire power of heaven, Sanhedrin, Pilate, world. Here it is. Okay? So it's a thoroughly biblical scene that talks about himself both walking around us as a mere man, all this veiled in his humanity, and now that he's risen in glory, when we get to God willing heaven with a lot of prayers and mercy, right? Here's who we're going to meet. We're going to meet this judge. So when one comes into this worship space, like the cathedrals of old, especially in Gothic France, you put these scenes over the church doors, you stood to be judged on how you treated the least among us, followed his law, lived his commandments, pleaded for his mercy. This captures so much of Christ. And it's a liturgical Christ because on the altar, as Father said downstairs, heaven and earth meet here. Heaven and earth meet here, it meets here to bring us there. That's the whole idea. Did you notice during the Mass how special it is to consecrate an altar? All the care that's taken, right? So we take a piece of stone and we anoint it. We wash it with holy water. We clothe it and we light it. It reminds you of what? A baptism, right? We baptize it today. Like what's going to happen back there in a font that's coming soon. All of us here who are baptized, because it's a Christ in our midst. When he's taken out of the cross, he's washed, he's anointed, he's wrapped, he's placed in the tomb, he rises. This is, a, this is Christ now, and it's been consecrated as such to lead us here. Okay? Make sense so far? So it's a November scene, but it's a scene for all the ages. It picks up on Mother Cabrini, it picks up on all saints, picks up on Christ the King. And as one last nod to November and to Mother Cabrini, there's actually a need to look at the back door as you can when you leave. You see my pointer here, my illegal Chinese pointer. <laughs> That's from Matthew 25, the judging of the nations. And he says, what you've done to the least of mine, you did for me. It's from Cabrini's feast day readings. If you're going to have the gospel of Mother Cabrini's feast day, one of the options is Matthew 25, because it'll work for the poor and those who are the least of those among us. It's how we're going to be judged. So that verse and this are meant to be taken as a, as a whole. It kind of brings the whole room together. When I meet him, when I die, he will ask me how I lived those verses. As she was asked when she graduated from this life to the next in glory. Okay? So it all comes together. Right? In a very beautiful kind of way. So that's the Lord, right? And this is him coming on the clouds of heaven. It's an end of time, apocalyptic, beautiful scene. Hope you would agree. When we first thought this up, the, um, there was an initial rendering of this, which was a little more basic. In fact, it was a lot more basic. It was, it was cheaper, too, I'll just tell you. Um, <laughs> I gave money too. I mean, I, I helped pay for this. So, um, anyway, we had, you know, the Lord here, and we had a bunch of clouds around him, and we had a review committee look at it, and they said, well, you know, it's, it's a 41-foot-tall wall. Don't you want something else on besides Jesus and some clouds? And I thought, well, that's, that's not a bad idea. So we, we went back to the shop, and here's where Comrade Schmidt is so great to work with. 
I said, I'll tell you what I want. I said, I want Christ in majesty. I want him on a throne. I want angels and saints around him. Okay. So they come back. And they spit out something that looked a lot like this, at least in a layout form. The figures were not detailed, but it was kind of crowded a bit like this. I said, okay, this I can work with, right? Father, the cost you double. Fine. <laughs> it's only money. So, um, whatever. So, anyway, this is how it turns out, right? So we know who Christ is. He's the one enthroned. He's the one coming in majesty. And you can see that he is wounded and risen. He has a scepter. He has his crown. He has a halo that is, especially in the Eastern tradition, unique. In fact, he's the only one here with a halo because it would have been all haloed up if we would have done everybody with a halo. But the emphasis is on the one who is the source of all of our sanctity in this life and the one to come, right? And above him, we have the Father and the Holy Spirit. So this is a Trinitarian image, right? Um, the dove, classic Holy Spirit image. We could have put the Father up here, but we talked about it and decided this was a little bit better because so much of the emphasis was on the, the Christ and majesty. To have a, a Father on a throne looked a little redundant. He would have been kind of small and kind of out of the way. So this is sort of a, a compromise on depicting the Trinity with a stronger Christological emphasis in the scene. But we could have put a trinity up there. Um, you also, you know, have to come all the way in to look all the way up there, right? So this is a trick to get people to sit in the front seat. <laughs> I'm not here anymore. You can tell me how it's working, but that was the idea, okay? You gotta walk all the way in and look all the way up. <clears throat> Father, Holy Spirit, Son, enthroned in majesty, right? And he is here in the heavenly court. So we added angels, and they are the probably easiest ones to figure out, right? So they are on his left, on his right, a little bit like in the Matthew Gospel scene where the nations are judged left and right, but not quite. This is not quite that depiction. It's similar to that. So over his left shoulder are four angels depicting the, the resurrection, the resurrection angels. And in artwork for a long time, in church windows and in paintings of things, there have been um, paintings of these angels. We know from the Gospels of the resurrection scene that when he rose from the dead, angels opened the stone. Angels announced the good news. I want to say it's in Matthew's Gospel, okay? So here are the resurrection angels, right? And they're holding objects that are a part of our belief in the power of Christ risen from the dead. So uh, the one up here, she's holding a palm branch. And this is an elsewhere in the meal, right? In the ancient world, a palm was a symbol of victory over death. So when an emperor or a general conquers and comes back to his home territory, what do they do? They have a big parade. They build a big monument, like an arch, arch of triumph. And they wave palm branches because it was a sign of immortality. You, the immortal one, have conquered. So the palm means I've conquered. It means death couldn't stop me. Palms were seen as this life-giving plant, the symbol of the fact that things could come back over and over again, right? Palm branch for the resurrection, lilies as well, think Easter, okay? It's the fragrant white flower of the resurrected Christ that's so full of goodness and beauty, there's not a spot on a lily, right? There's not a spot on the risen Christ. He's, he has no death in him at all, right? Next to that one, she is holding um, the, the napkin, call it the shroud, with his face on it. So it's not really Veronica's veil, um, 
because that would be on the other side, although they don't have one over there. That's really what covered him in the tomb. So think about the shroud that's in Turin. This is a, a, a nod to that, all right? And then she is holding, that angel, um, the angel's not gender, the angel is holding a book with the lamb on it. So this is the lamb with a little banner from the book of Revelation, the one that has triumphed, in, uh, who was slain and rises. And the book is the one with the seven seals in the book of Revelation that only the risen Christ can open, which is the book of life, where all of the elect, the saved, are written down for eternity. If you go to St. Mary's up in Barton, that little lamb and book is on the front of the altar. That's the same thing, right? So resurrected angels, resurrection angels over here, and then opposite them, the angels of the passion. So he has passed through this to arrive at the resurrection. The ones in the passion, same thing, they're holding instruments that would have been a part of his offering for us on the cross. And the fact that they're holding them tells us that they could not stop him, which is going to be a theme for the rest of this mural. They're holding the very things that we thought could stop God and could hold him back. And the fact that they have him, it's like saying, you know, he won. He won. The cross, right? The, in the ancient Roman world, the most feared, brutal object of torture of capital punishment, of control for the population that they used to hold down the people with fear, the angel says, he beat it. To you who are the Christians struggling in persecution, don't be afraid of the cross. He, he, he beat it. And here's the crown of thorns, you know, the, the mockery. Who's, who's the fool now? The ones who thought that they could take him down with their mere earthly ideas of power, right? Here are the nails. Here is the spear that opened his side. They are saying, death cannot stop me. Death cannot stop me, right? So he's flanked by angels. We get to heaven, praise God, that, please God that we get there. Uh, we'll be surrounded by the angels. We're surrounded by them right now, frankly. We just don't see them, but they are, they are there, okay? Which brings us down to this whole group gathered here. Well, no, actually doesn't, I'm sorry. So, this, this should be obvious, huh? Right? <laughs> Joseph on his left with the uh, lilies of purity, uh, not only that symbolize his virtuous heart, but um, a story that says that uh, when Mary was a young child in the temple, having been raised there as a virgin for the rest of her destiny of a life, uh, and she was to be betrothed to somebody, uh, Joseph saw the temple virgins brought in front of him, and when Mary was presented to him, his staff blossomed into lilies. So call it an engagement ring, so to speak, right? So that or his purity. And then, of course, opposite him, the Holy Mother, and both of them bowed in adoration, their heads bowed, and she, the only other one in the image, wearing a crown, because she is, at his right, the Queen of Heaven and the Queen of Earth. So our Holy Mother is powerful. She pleads for us all the time. She wants to be where she is. She prays for her church on Earth with unceasing fervor, and she is crowned the Queen of Heaven and Earth, right, at the right side of her Son. So that brings us to these. Um, part of why these are tricky is just a matter of um, the layout of the wall. This wall curves and bends every way you could possibly think of, right? It's, um, it's a complicated little wall. And when we were mapping all this out, uh, the artist, the first one who actually worked on it was a man named Stoiko, who this was his retirement project, okay? He did the basic opening research and some of the initial drawings. 
And then Anthony, who is here, really did all the rest of this work. So Anthony gets the bulk of the credit, but Stoico helped to map it with me. So we had to figure out, you know, they're going to look a little distorted because unless you walk around, they all look small. It's only because you're standing in the middle. You go over there, they're going to look bigger, okay? But that means that on the edges are going to be probably the, the less prominent people, perhaps, and the main ones are going to be in the middle because they're the ones most easily seen from the middle of the church, right? So that means the best seats here are right, right here, okay? <laughs> this is a hint. <laughs> Who are these people? So I had all these figures. So Comrade Schmidt said, Father Nathan, you wanted to spend all this money? I said, yes, of course. And um, you have all these people, so who do you want them to be? So I thought about it, prayed about it, and I said, well, let's do this. So I said, um, well, to back up, in this church, for all of its mid-modern beauty, one thing that's always been a, um, I would say, limitation for us here is that we don't have images in here to look at. Not a lot of statues. The, the windows are an abstract version of the life of Christ. You might not have known that, but actually, maybe you do know that. The windows mirror each other all the way around, and the artists who did these things in the mid-70s wanted them to be a life of Christ on one side, which matches our life on the other side, and this is his way of talking about discipleship. Now, without a secret decoder ring, I could not tell you what any of it means, okay? <laughs> but I promise you it means something, right? It was his own version of iconography. Four centuries and centuries, when the faithful came to Catholic churches and um, they needed to know how to understand the faith, they looked to the windows, they looked to the altars, they looked to the statues, and they learned to read the code of iconography. Who are these people? So I said, I would love to have in our church, devoid of much other artistic things, anything. Okay, to look at that's catechetical and talks to us about the history of the faith. So I said, let's go apostles, and let's go men and women. I don't want to be just men up there. Uh, women are saved too, isn't that right, in the church? Okay, so we have to be able to say, the Lord calls all of us with equal beautiful dignity, right? So it's a men and women who are redeemed and who have made it to the beauty of sainthood from different sectors of the church's life. It's mainly the apostles, but obviously not entirely. So I'll give you a bit of a clue. You heard it at Mass. You hear it at Mass here uh, often, because I believe Father Strand and Father Kevin, who have more energy than I do, pray Canon 1 often during the Mass, which is great. This is Eucharistic prayer number one out of the Missal. In communion with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious ever Virgin Mary, Mother of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed Joseph, her spouse, your apostles and martyrs, Peter and Paul, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Jude. And we have a few others. In fact, none of the rest on this list are not up there, but they are Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lauren, Cosagonus, John and Paul, Constant, and Damien. So the apostles are intentionally mentioned in Canon 1. Flip toward the end of the same prayer. To us, your servants, who those sinners, hope in your abundant mercies, graciously grant some share fellowship with the holy apostles and martyrs, with John the Baptist, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, Ignatius, Alexander, Marcellinus, Peter, Flodi, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Estelia, Anastasia, and all your saints. So I'd say about half the Roman canon saints are on this wall. They aren't all in there, but about half of them are. 
sort of go around. These are their stories, right? Um, we'll start up here on the left with the guy with the fire on his head and this uh, medal on the front of him and this staff. And by the way, I really need to give credit to Conrad Schmidt because I said, I want you to be able to recognize all of them. And they went, oh, really? I said, yes, all of them. And somehow they figured this out. So it's a real credit to Stoico with his early research and drawing and then Anthony who, who just beautifully adapted and brought it to life and laid it out so you actually can tell who all of them are which is rare in these kinds of things, okay? So this guy over here, um, he's wearing green and green. He's got a staff in his right hand. He has a medal of Jesus on his front of him. He's got a flame on his head. Um, this is the part where you talk instead of me. Who is that? Jude, okay? Patron saint of hopeless causes, right? Among other things. So um, Jude is in the Apostolic College. He is a letter authored to him in the New Testament. He's probably a, a cousin of some of these other guys in this mural. We don't know a lot about him, but he wears green for the color of hope because of his, you know, hopeless causes thing, right? The speculation about Jude is that he, was, he became the patron saint of lost causes because of his similarity to the name of the guy who was not up here, Judas. So, the, oh man, you can imagine, so here they are at dinner, you know. Jude, man, you're, you're stuck. I mean, you're, you're just like the other guy who just hung himself. Yeah, I know, I know. So, I'll, we'll make you the patron saint of hopeless causes. Okay. <laughs> it's a compliment. Um, the rumor, the legend, is that he was, uh, well, there, he's martyred, okay, so he's a martyr. He died for his faith. His feast day is October 28th. And the metal thing, well, the, the flame is for Pentecost. They were all Pentecost, but for some reason, he's the only one depicted with a flame over his head, just by custom. And the metal is a story that goes back to the fact that there was a king, I want to say in Turkey, in the, it's called Edessa, who by legend heard that Jesus was traveling, he was teaching and preaching, and the king was ill. And he sent an emissary to Jesus to uh, draw a sketch of Jesus to take back to the king so that when he saw him in person, as in like the sketch of him, it'd be like being in person and he'd be cured. Jesus hears about this. He encounters this guy drawing him by legend and says, I'll do you one better. He took a towel, presses his face on it, and says to Jude, take this to the king of Edessa. He takes the towel, the image, the image of Edessa to the king. The king looks at it. He is cured. He becomes a Christian. So this is how Jude uh, has that image now going forward. It's, it's a legendary story about how Christ heals through ambassadors. Okay? So that's what Jude is. He's an ambassador of healing, right? So that's Jude. Down below him now is Simon, his companion, on the calendar on October 28th. They are always together, Simon and Jude. That's their feast day. Simon is uh, the most obscure of the apostles. We don't know much about him. He's mentioned in all the accounts of the apostles, so it's consistent historical that way. But otherwise, we just know that he was a martyr, and lots of places vie for his martyrdom. So we're not quite sure where he actually died. We just know that he did. And um, he is always recognizable because he's holding a saw. Okay? Why would he be holding a saw? He was not a carpenter. Yeah, they sawed him in half to kill him. Isn't that kind? <laughs> this is the thing about the Romans and the ancients. You know, we have a very, for all the messes of the modern world that are awful and, and contrary to human dignity, the fact is they were brutal. 
They were just absolutely brutal. So they sawed the guy in half, right? How does he appear with a saw saying, ha? Ah. The Christians so impressed the early pagans because they were not afraid to die. I mean, they really were not. We, we could learn, I think, as modern Christians from their courage, right? So death could not stop him. So Simon and Jude. Down here, so here's this guy. Now you need to see him down at the bottom here. He's holding a book, and he's got this angel at his feet. Those things are to be taken as a unit. Uh, so he probably wrote something. That's what he's holding in his hand. And he has an angel that's associated with him. So guess who that is? What would you say? You said Matthew, what are you going to say? Yes, it is Matthew, right? So author of the first gospel. The uh, evangelists all have uh, attributes linked to them. They come from the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, those attributes. The, uh, the eagle and the ox and the lion and the angel are all linked with one of the four. At St. Mary's up in the sanctuary, those four evangelist medals are up there. Matthew has always been paired with the angel because those symbols have to do with how their gospels start. They open with a certain particular theme. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus with the family tree, with the men, basically, right? So this is a small man or an angel to honor Matthew, the writer of the gospel, and an apostle, also known as Levi, the tax collector, the one who was the customs officer and reformed his ways, quit the IRS, and went to go and work for the Lord instead, okay? This guy is near and dear to my heart. By the way, I am not in this mural anywhere. I wanted to be clear. <laughs> there was a rumor. My face is nowhere in this mural. All right? I will end with the one self-indulgent thing I did in this entire thing. We'll, we'll get to that at the end where I, my, my little, it wasn't my face, I promise. You wouldn't want that. Um, anyway, but he is dear to my heart. So he's got a palm, so he's a martyr. He's holding a knife. Any guesses on this guy? He is an apostle. Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Bartholomew. Closest thing I have to New Testament patron. I'm technically Nathan, but he's close enough. Um, feast day, August 24th. So he was, uh, by accounts, skinned alive. He was flayed. So he holds the knife that was used to deliver excruciating torture to this guy, right? You're getting a theme here? It's a really bloody mural. Didn't you, didn't you realize how this violence in this church? Here it is, okay? All that they've overcome, right? Below him, this guy has a spear and a carpenter's square. Patron saint of engineers, patron saint of India. The kids all know who these people are. Isn't that great? This is, this is great Catholic upbringing in action here. It is St. Thomas the Apostle. Now the question is why is he holding a, well here's the easy one, why is he holding a spear? How do you think he died? Right, he was speared to death. And what's at the carpenter's square? So the legend is he gets sent to India and uh, he encounters this uh, Indian emperor who is looking for an architect to construct a temple for him in the Roman style, like a church. And he's going to give money for this. So Thomas says, oh, I'll do that for you. Okay, so he takes the money, 
and the king goes away, or emperor on some journey, comes back, and he gets back, and there's no church, but there's Thomas. He said, well, where is the church? Thomas says, I built you one in heaven. I gave it all to the poor. <laughs> and the emperor became a Christian, okay? Uh, the next emperor was less impressed, and he speared him to death. So uh, next county over, it didn't go so well for Thomas. But that's how he becomes patron saint of engineers and builders, because he built the temple in heaven by giving away to the poor the king's assets, right? So it's great. This guy here, he is holding a fuller's club, or a fuller's staff in his hand. So it's like a big baseball bat with warts on it. What's a fuller? In Roman times, who, who knows what a fuller would have dealt with? Cloth. You, you, you had to refine raw wool and turn it into garments. That's what a fuller was, okay? Tailors did the end work, but you had to start with the... So a fuller's staff was used to take untreated raw wool and beat all the impurities out of the wool. It was a ferocious instrument before you took it to the next step in the fullering process. This is James the Less. Father Jacob, which one's your patron? Oh, I see. Okay. You go Old Testament, do you? Well, then you're not in the mural. <laughs> you had your chance. <laughs> Jacoby, James, your pastor, or the patriarch of the Old Testament. Um, James the Less, uh, the one who was, as best we could tell, the first bishop of Jerusalem, the one who was a pillar of the early church. He is the one that is consulted by Paul when he goes back to talk about going to the Gentiles. He is among the earliest of the martyrs. He becomes Bishop of Jerusalem, and he is thrown from the top of the temple, and they kill him, and to finish him off, they take the fuller's club and they beat him to death with it. So James the last dies a martyr in Jerusalem almost right off the bat. Very important figure in the early Christian community. Okay, and also, as far as we can tell, the author of the letter of James. Okay, so before he wrote that, or before, <laughs> wrote that before they did that to him, okay? Below him, this guy with a beard and bread. That's a bread basket. Guesses? Kids? Show up your parents, you can do it. Titus? No, that's the one right below him. I gave that away. I know you do, I'm trying to see. If... <laughs> You're not supposed to use a cheat sheet, yeah? It's Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, which is a town in the northern shore of Galilee, along with James and John, probably. So they're all, they all grew up down the street from each other. And uh, in John chapter 6, when Jesus is about to feed the multitudes, he tests them and he says, so, where are we going to get all this money to feed all these people, right? He says, where are we going to get food for them all? And then Philip was the one who says, well, you know, all these days, wages couldn't possibly feed all these people. So Philip is the one who says the stupid thing, okay? He's, he's the fall guy to make the miracle. And as a result, ever since then, he has to carry bread around with him, so. <laughs> That's Philip. Below him is Andrew, an extremely important figure in the church, probably uh, martyred in modern-day Turkey. If you're an Eastern Orthodox Christian, especially the Greeks and the Russians, Andrew is very much your chief patron saint. So he is huge in the Orthodox community. His feast day every year is November the 30th and he is crucified on the X-shaped cross. So he is in front of an X-shaped cross. 
He's also, every year, the one who starts us off with the date for Advent. The date of Advent is always chosen at the Sunday that lands closest, the Feast of St. Andrew. So he's the Advent marker, okay? This guy, I think you should know. Who is that? John the Baptist. So he's not an apostle, but he is of such profound influence and stature in the early Christian community, in, excuse me, in, in the pre-Christian community, in the Gospels, as the last and greatest prophet. He just had to have a place in the mural. He's also in the Roman canon. He's mentioned in the Eucharistic prayer that I referenced. And it's also a nod to the Orthodox because if you go to Orthodox churches, they have these icon screens for their altars and they all have to have John the Baptist in them. Okay, it's just like a rule. You must have certain figures and he is always depicted. So he needs to be here if we're gonna really be properly iconographic about our, our scene, okay? <laughs> he has a lamb at his feet. He has a shell for the baptism, the Lamb of God, that he points out. And his little banner says in Latin, Behold the Lamb of God. Because in John's Gospel, this was a couple Sundays ago, he points out the correct identity of the Savior as he passes by. Okay? So, Jude, Nathaniel, Simon, Matthew, Andrew, Philip, James the Last, Thomas, John the Baptist. We're going to slide past this in for a second. Who is the guy here front and center with the eagle at his feet? John the Evangelist, right? So his gospel begins, Matthew starts with the genealogy, his starts with this soaring theological description of the word becoming flesh. John is the one who kind of sees the furthest into the depths of the mystery of Jesus Christ. He has the eagle eye, you might say, the highest view. And so he's depicted here with the eagle at his feet, also without a beard, to show that he was probably the youngest of the band, the only non-martyr of the apostolic group besides Judas. So of the, ten, or the 11 faithful ones, he, he died of old age, which gave him plenty of time to write all these great things for us. So thank goodness he wasn't killed early on, or we'd be missing a lot of stuff. Okay? So God kept him alive for his own beautiful reasons. And he's really here as a trio because... These guys right here form the, uh, the inner circle of the apostolic college. Okay, so he would be a brother of this guy. Who is this guy? James the Great. Great not because he was cooler, apparently because he was taller, I kid you not. So James the Less, James the Short, James the Great, James the Taller, James the Older, Nathan the Less. I've been less all my life. <laughs> yeah, more so these days. Anyway, um, so James the Great is here. Uh, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. I gave that one away. They go up the mount for transfiguration. They're the ones who go to Jesus in the agony of the garden closest to him while the others stay behind. Uh, they are the ones who are able to go in to raise up Jairus' daughter in Mark's gospel. So they are kind of his core little group, right? And... Um, He's depicted with the attributes of a pilgrim. He, was, uh, he had his head cut off in Jerusalem in the year um, 44, no, no, what it was, yeah, 44 I think it was. And um, so he's martyred in Jerusalem. You can go there today to the place where it happened. There's a church in the Armenian quarter where, where he was martyred over the spot. And his remains, his relics were taken, some say by angels, all the way to Spain, where he had apparently visited before he came back to Jerusalem to get killed off. And in Spain, uh, his relics were enshrined in a spot that became the most famous pilgrimage destination in all of Europe except for Rome, Santiago de Compostela. 
So if you've ever heard of the Camino or the Way, it's walking to his remains. And so in medieval art, James became the guy. Like if you wanted something, you had to walk to Compostela, even if you lived in Poland, okay? And when you got there, um, you had made it to the end of the greatest pilgrimage route of all time. It still is, really. So what do pilgrims have? They carry a staff for protection, and they carry a gourd for water. And the shell is uh, also an attribute of the pilgrim and of the seashore, where his remains were, are enshrined next to the, the, the sea that brought him to where he is. Okay, so these are all attributes of the pilgrim, not of his martyrdom. He wasn't killed by a shell, not in this case, okay? Nowhere is Peter killed by keys. Don't get that confused, right? Peter is kneeling with the keys because in Matthew's gospel, he's entrusted with the keys of the apostolic college. He is the first pope. He is the one who can lock and unlock the uh, truths of the story of salvation for all ages as pope and his successors. So Peter is front and center. He's usually depicted with this kind of short, scruffy beard and kind of shorter hair. The artist did a great job with this here. So here's this whole crew, okay? So I skipped over one because this is the end of the apostles right here. And that one too. Who did I skip over? Mary Magdalene, right? Why is she over here? Because she's with the apostles. She was not an apostle in the formal sense of the term. She was not ordained. She was not a priest. We had that argument in the 90s. I hope we're done with that now, okay? But the fact is, she is the one who first received the resurrection. And she is the one who had to carry it as an apostle to the apostles and say, hey, I saw him and I know him. And they went, no, you didn't. <laughs> because guys are stupid. <laughs> it's tremendous that the Lord would entrust the news of his resurrection, which is the greatest news of all time. He would tweet it if he could today. To a woman. In the ancient world, women could not testify in court. They were considered to be, I hate to say it, insane. So the fact is, it was, her evidence would be inadmissible in any kind of public hearing about the situation. And yet God says, a woman will hear my testimony first. And she's rewarded as the one who was perhaps his most ardent follower. We know that seven demons go out of her. Luke's gospel tells us that. She is from the, the town probably of Magdala. There were so many Marys in the ancient world, they had to name them by town. Okay? So she's Mary of the town of Magdala, a fishing village on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can go there today. It's, they've excavated all the ruins. There it is. After those demons go out of her, which means that she was in a pretty sorry spot, she was so convicted of Christ's power, she followed him for the rest of her life. And she paid for his travels, it says in Luke's Gospel, along with Joanna and Susa. So she had money. She is here with the apostles because she belongs with the apostles. Okay? It's a recognition of her dignity as the apostle of the apostles. And she has at her feet a, a jar of ointment, which is her classic attribute because she appears at the foot of the cross on Good Friday, and she appears on Easter Sunday morning carrying what in her hands, probably oil to anoint the body before the angels appear and tell her he's gone. Okay? There is some custom, and we argue about these things, that she was the woman who anointed Jesus, um, his feet and things, the, the sinful woman. 
I don't take that line. I think that they were different people, but this is an argument today. Anyway, the point is, she's got oil here because at some point she did something to him with oil. How about that? I would go on Easter Sunday morning, that was the intent. But anyway, here she is with the group. This guy, not an apostle, but probably really in essence was, who is he? Paul. You gotta have Paul, right? Paul's just great. He uh, has a sword because he got his head cut off. And he's holding a book because he was a voluminous letter writer and dictator. Okay. So uh, he and Peter appeared together, um, united in the heavenly realm. They were enemies once upon a time as Paul first began his career trying to destroy all these people. The work for the genocide. He was a genocidist okay, in his opening days. And he uh, repented in a dramatic manner. And now in heaven they are united in fellowship, right? After having Paul realized that he was picking on the wrong person, okay? And then we get to these group here. These are all the women that round out the mural, right? These are a little bit more eclectic, but they do have a point. So, we have a couple of Carmelites here. They were not around when Jesus was around. Don't, don't get that messed up, right? These are the, the newest saints in the group, especially that one right there, who died in 18... 97. So, um, who are these two? The Teresas, right? Teresa of Jesus or of Avila, Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, okay? They're here for a couple of reasons. For one, are, it's not uncommon for churches to give a nod to important people in their area. So, there are Franciscans in the Sheboygan altar murals, there are others, Dominicans who appear in places who have had Dominican houses near them. We have near us a rather prominent Carmelite shrine, which is what? Right. It's a nod to the friars and to the Holy Hill community. It's also a nod to, um, and, and in this parish, a deep love of the Carmelites. I mean, this is very much a Carmelite north, in my experience, okay, for good reasons. But they also, uh, they are two of now four, when this is created, only three, women doctors of the church. What's a doctor of the church? A doctor of the church is a designation the Pope in the Holy See gives because it means that a person's writings and teachings and spirituality have been examined such that what they have to say is good for everybody. They're especially insightful thinkers and prayers. So are they infallible? No. But the church says by giving you the title doctor, everyone can learn from them. Everyone can learn what they have to say and how they live. So these are two doctors of the church. Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Jesus. Beneath the first of the doctors to be named in 1970, was this one, Catherine of Siena. Okay? So three women doctors. She is holding a book called The Dialogue, which is probably her most famous work. She was a mystic. She lived in a very difficult time in church history in the 14th century. And she had the unpleasant job of telling the Pope that he was wrong. Okay? He listened. Um, and she was so beautifully, mystically wedded with the Lord that she was gifted with the crown of thorns as something of a, as in like a, the, the, she experienced the wounds of Christ's passion in her body. So she's got the crown of thorns because of her closeness to the passion of Christ, and lilies because of her, her pure and virtuous life in a very filthy age in the church. So three women doctors. Um, the Holy Father has since named Hildegard von Bingen as the fourth woman doctor of the church, but unlike these three, her memorial is optional on the calendar, so she doesn't make the mural. <laughs> and I round up people and money. So she's, 
she's out. But you can like her anyway, that's cool. She's just not in the mural. Um, and this, we round out here with the martyrs in the Roman canon. So the one with the organ here, you all know who this is. Cecilia. Cecilia, right? And she's by the choir. Okay. Why does she have an organ? She, she never played an organ in her life. What's with the organ? She was not killed by an organ. <laughs> Don't ever repeat that. Nor was she killed by an arrow. That the arrow is the ecstasy of divine love piercing the heart of Teresa of Avila, okay? This is her mystical vision of union. Anyway, and she wasn't killed by flowers. So the organ, she was wedded to this, um, what's his name? Was it Valerian, I want to say? This, this Roman gentleman, and she was a Christian. He was not. And she was a Christian in secret, and it was still pagan Rome. And she made a vow in her heart to really only marry the Lord. And so when she was betrothed to this other guy, she said, hey, I got a secret. I'm already married. He said, to who? Well, to Jesus. Because, well, that's ridiculous, right? But she instructs him to go and meet this um, angel on the road out of Rome to learn more about it. He goes. He's converted. Well, this gets out, and they're really not happy with her, so they decide to kill her as a Christian martyr. And the story goes that they were impressed with the fact that on her, her apparent wedding day to the guy, who she wasn't really going to marry, she sat with a song of love in her heart for the real spouse of Jesus Christ. So it's the song of her devotion in the heart that makes the patron state of music. So, like, I sing best in my heart, you know, that, about me at this point, right? So she's one of those people who sings best in her heart. Okay, how about that, right? So she's over there in the organ because, you know, it's just how in Rome, the organ's everything, right? If you can talk about music, you can have, have an organ, right? Um, then we have these two here. She's got a pot. She's got a baby. They appear in the Roman canon. Any guesses on those two? Felicity and Perpetua. Now, which one's which? You can't look at your sheet. Felicity has the baby, that's her daughter. Perpetua has the pot, let's say remember, Perpetua pot, okay? Not the other kind of pot, that kind of pot. <laughs> Perpetua has the pot. Now, I have to say, you should read up on all these people, but I think I highly recommend reading their story because as best we can tell, it's written by one of the two of them firsthand. It's, the, it's called The Passion of Perpetua. And she wrote it and dictated it essentially while she was in jail. And it was so popular that it was read in churches throughout the Middle Ages for years and years because it's such an amazingly moving story. They were killed in third century North Africa, so Carthage, which these days I think is, uh, is it Morocco, I want to say? So a North African coast, Roman outpost, Carthage, big city. And they were martyred. So Perpetua was a noble when she was 22, 21. And she had learned of the Christian faith and she also married and probably widowed. She was with child, and she explained to her father that she was going to become a Christian. She was going to become a catechumen, and he was horrified because he knew that under the current emperor of the day, she was going to be executed for it. He tried to talk her out of it. So what she famously said to him was, she pointed to a pot, and to see that pot, he said, she said to him, that pot can be nothing other than a pot. You know that that's what it is. If you look at me, I can be nothing other than a Christian. The pot is what it is. The Christian is what I am. And I will not be changing. So that's where the pot reference comes from. 
The father is horrified and tries to basically attack and arrest her. This gets to the authorities. She's taken into jail. While she's in jail, she joins other Christians, including Felicity. Um, she's baptized before she gets to jail. Felicity is a slave woman. Felicity is eight months pregnant at the time that she's under arrest for being a catechumen. Um, Perpetua had given birth, given up her baby to uh, be adopted by somebody else. Felicity uh, is in jail, and they're going to execute him. But the thing of it is, the Romans listen carefully to this. Modern Americans would not execute a pregnant woman because it was infanticide as far as they were concerned. So until you gave birth, you couldn't be killed. So she was concerned that she was going to miss her chance to die with her comrades who in prison had formed a bond in the face of the executioners. She gives birth at the last minute and the baby's given over to a pious Christian to take care of and they all get taken out to get martyred together. And the women are ultimately killed by a gladiator. They kind of stand back to back and they have their heads cut off. Um, a lot of this is written down by Perpetua in jail before she's arrested or before she is killed. It's a great story of courage, right? So they are here in the mural. There's a nod to the heroism of the early martyrs and a great story. There's only a couple left and then I'll shut up. Um, do you want to go home, I'm sure? We have these three. This one, you're going to just tell she's holding on a platter, her breasts, Agatha, February 5th, huge uh, Sicilian saint. She was tortured in a very cruel, awful manner by male torturers. You can fill the rest of this in. And became patron saint, among other things, of people with breast cancer and particular ailments that um, are troubling for you who are women, right? And a great intercessor in the Middle Ages because of her power over her persecutors. So that's Agatha. Lucy up top holding on a plot of her eyes. I don't think she died. Also Sicilian, third century martyrs all around. And then this one uh, right here, holding the lamb, whose feast day is today, St. Agnes. Agnes is Latin for lamb, okay? So another beautifully famous early Roman martyr who was like Cecilia, wedded to the Lord, would not get married to the secular creeps around her, right, and was killed for doing so. So this rounds out the crew. Not bad, right? We could have put a lot more in there, obviously, we're out of money, but I mean, the thing of it is, um, it gives you something to look at during Mass, in the best sense. We have to want to be in the mirror, right? Lastly, and I'll end with this, uh, the small personal indulgence in the room, I hope you forgive me for it if you don't like it, is that one. We really never had a great Mary altar in here. I mean, uh, we have the one over here as a statue, which was kind of an afterthought. The statue never went with the church. It was an add-on. So we made a decision to make a Mary altar. And um, I like the image. It's an image of my favorite church to visit in Salzburg. It's the monastery of St. Peter. It's Benedictine. And when you go into the monastery, and you, the nave is this beautiful Baroque nave, and you go to the right in the side aisle, she's out of view, but you come to the side aisle, and she's right there around the corner. And she looks exactly like that. So, Anthony, I said to Conrad Schmidt, here's a picture, I want that. <laughs> they went, okay. 
And I was there again a few weeks ago, and I was looking at it. It looks just like it. So they did a really nice job. So it's the German in me. I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm always a German. So Comrade Schmidt um, made the biggest mural in the history in this project. It's 41 feet tall. They've done murals forever. They've done thousands of them. This is the biggest one they ever did. They deserve a huge round of applause for putting this together. It was no small work. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you for welcoming me back. It's nice to see you. Pray for me. My job's crazy, but I'm held up by all of your prayers, and I really appreciate it. So thank you, and God bless.